My question to you is simply this. What can you say to the voters of New Hampshire on this stage tonight who see your resume and like it, but are hesitating on the likability issue where they seem to like Barack Obama more? Well, that hurts my feelings. <laughs> I'm sorry, Senator. I'm sorry. But I'll try to go on. <laughs> <laughs> He's very likable. I, I, I agree with that. I don't think I'm that bad. Um, uh, you're likable no. enough. Thank Hillary, you so much. No <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't think I'm that bad. Um, uh, you're likable no. enough. You're likable no. enough. You're likable no. enough. Thank Hillary, you so much. No. It's Brittany, bitch. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Our ed education, like such as South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like such as, and we sitting here. I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. Dude, yeah, what is with... Politicians are obviously all fucking weird-ass alien clones in that they want to go into politics, but names like Mitt or Newt... Mitt Romney's full name is Willard Mitt Romney. It's not even short for Mitchell. He had to go by Mitt because his first name was fucking Willard. <laughs> not William. <laughs> like, this guy has two almost normal names. <laughs> Apparently his full name is Newton Leroy Gingrich. Oh, Leroy. That's, that's a triple threat as far as <laughs> names go. Yeah. The official New York City Democrat who represents us in the state Senate. His name, you guys ready for this? His full name is Harvey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> this man double lost the name lottery. <laughs> I mean, my representative, who thankfully just lost her job, only because they f fucked the electoral map up. It's not like she lost to a cool insurgent, like a DSA-endorsed AOC type. She's lost to a different Democrat who's 80 years old. But Carolyn Maloney voted for the Iraq War, believes vaccines cause autism, and she once wore a full burqa on the floor of the <laughs> House of Representatives to be like, this is what the Taliban do to women. This is why we need to go and bomb them. And and this woman was a representative for over 30 years. You're telling me this is the best we can do in the alleged socialist hellscape of New York City? <laughs> Man, she got a built-in campaign slogan. No more baloney with Carolyn Maloney. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she lost to Jerry Nadler, who you may remember from Chapo, is the rep who shit himself. <laughs> <laughs> The clip of him just like very awkwardly shuffling away from the podium is glorious. If something smells badly, you can bet it's nap. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Remember Shuffle. We are so freaking excited this week to give you an episode that is the most anticipated we've ever done, certainly from Ben and I's side. I have been so excited to do this episode, more than any other, for sure. I was just rereading sources over and over again. It is, I'm calling the shot. I think this is going to be one of my personal favorite episodes so you're in for a treat yeah my name is ben with me as always my co-host jordana who introduced the show and joining us for his third appearance is none other than kyle say hi kyle hey -o. 
it's actually very appropriate that we have him because the last time he was on the pod, we discussed American Idiot and the 2004 election. Briefly, we touched on that election. But yeah, this- we, we discussed American Idiot Dan Brown, and we also discussed uh, the Green Bay album. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Got his ass. <laughs> But this week, we are taking a deep dive into the 2008 election and the primaries that led up to it. The contest between Hillary Clinton and the eventual nominee Barack Obama, as well as the Republican primaries, but largely focus on the general after that. The 2008 election has a special place in all of our hearts. This is one of the things that I remember contemporaneously, the most vividly. We were all super politics nerds uh, when it was happening. And this is the famous election between between Barack Obama and John McCain in 2008. And even more famous than that runoff was the Democratic primary battle, which took place between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And so why are we talking about this? Why, why, why are we getting into this election and not the, the Kerry Bush election of 2004? <laughs> well, I think it has the longest imprint and footprint on our current political moment. Obviously, Hillary Clinton runs again in 2016. Joe Biden catapulted onto the VP ticket just to balance it out, just to be old, white, and boring. Joe Brandon is now our president. And I think you kind of have some seeds that would eventually be harvested in 2016. And as we get into it, you're going to see how people talk about how politics is getting a little too entertainment-y. It's getting a little too social media-y. There's a little bit too much YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. So this is the first celebrity slash YouTube election. YouTube had a tremendous influence on this election. It gave us these characters like like Sarah Palin, like Barack Obama. And it was the first time that you could just watch a clip over and over and over again. So if a gaffe happened or something awesome happened, people are sitting there queuing it up again. It's not just like you had to see it on CNN once. There's this famous incident where McCain and his staff are watching a video of John Edwards do his hair on YouTube. And someone has said it to, I feel pretty, oh, so pretty. And John McCain is laughing his ass off. (laughs) Just (laughs) queuing it up for him and his team over and over again. And that's a microcosm of everything that's going to happen in this election is it's going to be queued up on YouTube over and over again. One thing that really stood out to me going back and just revisiting this election, one, I was shocked about how much my memory has already blurred and bled into the other elections on either side of it. But part of the reason why is, and it's so depressing, is that all the names of everybody involved are still around or are Mm -hmm. still involved in elections. It's just amazing to see how recycled everybody is and that there just hasn't been other than Donald Trump (laughs) there just hasn't been anyone new introduced. Yeah, no fresh blood Rudy Giuliani got huge national attention from this race and Mm -hmm. now he's trying to overturn elections and sweating all over the place and groping Borat's sister or whatever, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean Romney is the other second place finisher in the Republican primary Sarah Palin as an idea is still influenced hugely today, which we'll talk about. Hillary, obviously, by Biden. All of our cast of characters that we work with in modern politics come from this era. Yeah. And it's worth stressing the celebrity angle, too. If you look at the previous elections, how many people were like old, white and boring, right? Bob Dole wasn't getting anyone's... (laughs) 
Pulse Racing in 1996. Gore-Bush was a famously boring election that split exactly down the middle. And this was, if I can set the scene a little bit, towards the tail end of the decade, you have this horrible war in Iraq that in 2006 and 7 is at its worst, its lowest ebb, its highest casualties. There's no plan to get out. America's not even not going out. America's surging the troops in. You have a whole bunch of corruption scandals that have just passed right through me, but names like Scooter Libby or Tom DeLay, these were high-profile Republicans who went to prison. So the Democrats took back Congress in 2006. Everyone kind of knew there was no fucking way that the Republicans were going to hold on to this thing. Something new was going to happen. The times, they were a changing. So it was ripe for some kind of, not just a gore type to come in, but someone to actually get people excited. Because at the end of that Bush term, Bush had a lower approval rating than Richard Nixon, the guy who had to resign in disgrace, was more <laughs> popular than George W. Bush in 2008. Mm-hmm. And so not only do you get just bland, generic Democrat, you have potentially the first woman president or the first African-American president. And everyone knew whoever won that Dem primary, they were in. Or were they? This is also the first election in which social media plays an extremely large role. And this is sort of a hack thing to say about the 2008 election, but it is true. Like, in the same way that people talk about Kennedy's use of television in the 1960 election, that's what Facebook is here for Obama. He had 24 times as many Twitter followers as than John McCain and three times as many Facebook followers. And it made a huge difference. He was able to connect with people and get small donations after Hillary had locked up all of the big donors. Mm-hmm. That's a sort of a euphemism. <laughs> yeah, imagine the, being the 20-year-old staffer having to explain Twitter to John McCain in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> So essentially, in short, 2008 is the house of the dragon to our current Game of Thrones, if you will. And we're going to take you through the dance of the dragons of House Targaryen, of Y2K era politics. So let's get started by just going through our dramatis personae, like a play, our characters. If we say that the longest lasting imprint is that all these people are still with us, who are these people? We're going to start with none other than Hill Dog, Hillary Clinton. Hello. (laughs) I I am fun. I am fun. (laughs) The Onion really captured Hillary when they wrote a fake op-ed with that title. I am fun. (laughs) I am fun. My hobbies include testing the pH of water in different municipalities across America. I love pinball. (laughs) (laughs) I take my breadsticks with a glass of water on the side for dipping. (laughs) And so on and so on. (laughs) In short, Hillary comes off as an alien a lot of the time. In that likability clip that we started with. If you hate her, you think that she's ambitious. You think that she bullied the victims of her husband's Me Too's. You think that she's just in it for himself. If you love her, you probably are a wine mom who was around in the 90s, and you remember when she called herself the co-president as the first lady. Hillary has been planning to run for president for a while. She runs for Senate in 2000. She is so methodical and clinical about how she does politics. She says, I'm not even going to run for president until I have at least completed one turn. She's very much, do your homework, wait your turn, it'll be yours. And the thing is that she has to go up against Obama, who becomes very quickly a symbol. She can't beat the symbol because she is so off-putting in so many ways. Yeah, Obama really was, unfortunately for Hillary Clinton, the perfect foil for her. Mm -hmm. A man 
man whose entire ascendancy is on this wave of charisma. That's mm-hmm. his main attribute is being extremely charismatic. Just not a helpful mirror to hold up to her as someone who is a vacuum of charisma. And we're trying to find a way to talk about Hillary Clinton's weaknesses without sounding sexist. And it can be sort of difficult because to say that she's unlikable is this abstract idea. But watching the dozens of hours of her in debates and interviews and stuff like that, she never humanizes herself. She always thinks that if I show vulnerability, then people will think I'm weak because I'm a woman. And I have a sort of a cynical view towards that and think that she's just not capable of showing vulnerability. And she's made these gaffes her entire political career that have separated herself from regular people. Most famously when she was in the White House and someone asked her about, it was Whitewater, and she was like, well, maybe I should have been at home baking cookies. She's a feminist icon, but she also is standing by her husband who had two different sex crime planes. (laughs) That's something we learned while researching this. Famously, yeah, he's on the Lolita Express. There was another billionaire called Ron Burkle who had a plane with Bill Clinton called Air Fuck One. (laughs) This man has two sex plane friends. Oh, no. How easy it is to not be friends with sex plane guys. We're making a wooden sex plane. It's called the the Abuse Goose. Oh, no. I think when it comes to charisma, I was reading something by this anarchist historian named James Scott. People like to talk about charisma as this thing that you either got it or you don't. And that's just how it is. It's not a skill that you can train. It's an individual trait that you have. But a lot of people who are charismatic are actually exceptional active listeners, is his argument. And that there is a collaborative aspect to charisma between a speaker and a crowd. And he uses examples like MLK, who came up in the black church tradition where there's a literal call and response a lot of the time. And I think part of the disconnect might be in the fact that in order to have charisma, you need to be able to listen and change and adapt and make these very microscopic social adjustments. Whereas Hillary Clinton, when she asked to describe herself, she says, I'm an information person. It's just about doing your homework. And what is the rhetoric around Hillary when she runs for office? She's the most qualified to ever run for the office, right? Nothing about leadership or charisma or hearing your pain or empathy. And I think the contrast is so fucking funny when you compare her to her husband, who famously said, I hear your pain, or Obama, or at the other end of the spectrum, you have Trump's just pure reptile id. (laughs) That is his form of charisma. You need to be able to offer something to people. People need to feel listened to. Yeah, and it's it's interesting comparing the two of them because she, she gets so much flack for being kind of robotic and disingenuous and all these things. And you can argue that Obama is exactly as disingenuous and exactly as calculated and deliberate in all his moves, but he just is able to do it in a way that masks it. And I think that's Hillary's biggest issue is she just doesn't have the capacity or maybe the interest in masking that calculated side of her. It's just kind of always on display. And, you know, there's maybe an argument and and kind of spoke to Giordano about it being, it's hard not for there to be an inherent level of sexism, I think, when you're criticizing her. But like the, Oh, fuck, I just lost my train of thought. Um, but that's okay. Sometimes it's okay to be sexist. Is where, is where, <laughs> Kyle, is where Kyle was going with that. 
<laughs> wait, 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 wait. That, I don't think that was it. <laughs> no, just the idea that someone who just goes out there and says, this is what I want and I want to be president and I want to have power and I analyzed the situation and I saw what steps I was supposed to take and I did it and now you have to give it to me, which was literally basically the approach mm-hmm. and nobody's going to be excited. That doesn't mobilize votes. That doesn't get people excited to come out and support that. So often the course of action that she seems to follow is the one that she thinks has been focus grouped the best. In the 90s, she was against gay marriage. And then she'll say to you, oh, well, at the time, you know, that's how what people thought. People were against being gay. And and if you say, well, what about the crime bill? She'll say, one, don't call my husband that. His full name is Bill Clinton. Well, sometimes we're looking for a president who can look ahead on something that they know to be true and push past what is politically unpopular. And it seems like she's very often incapable of doing that because her staff of nerds has determined what polls well and what doesn't. And they follow that as often as they can, as they did with the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incredibly risk averse. Exactly. Incredibly risk averse. One of the most risk averse candidates ever. In 2016, she famously did not go on Howard Stern because she thought, it would give her some gaff, but that was the time in my life that I liked her the most was when in 2018 she went on Howard Stern. I empathized with her. She sounded great. And it just seems like it's always just the path of least resistance for her. Yeah. So one thing she proposed in 2007 was $5,000 for every baby in America. And, wow. and then okay, later when someone that. was like, hey, how about that $5,000 for everybody that you promised? She said, hmm. That was really just an idea, not a policy, like a proposal. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think when you're a presidential candidate, you're allowed to say things and be like, hey, I'm just thinking out loud here. Hey, <laughs> I was just spitballing. Yeah, there's no bad ideas in the brainstorm. <laughs> now, let's move on to former president and alleged sex criminal Bill Clinton. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. He, he's America's lovable sex rascal. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a lot of stamps in his passport. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's got his hand in the cookie jar and his cigar in his intern's pussy. <laughs> Don't, you can't be mad at me, Kyle. Be mad at no, Bill Clinton. <laughs> He's America's Pepe Le Pew. I think what you need to know about Bill Clinton in the 2008 election is that he is an absolute wrecking ball for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Maybe. There's a whole other what happened narrative after 2008. How did Hillary Clinton, with all of her money and all of her connections and all of her experience, how did she lose to the two-year senator whose middle name was Hussein at the height of the war on terror? How did this happen? And there are people out there within Clinton world who see Bill as a liability, but the main point is that he does add some baggage to Hillary. I don't know if he's necessarily a total liability, but in the lead up to this election, so many Democrats are just sick of the Clintons. The Clintons have been around for almost 20 years. They're looking for someone new, but the Clintons just are this juggernaut because of their fundraising connections. Yeah, because of the, quote, large donors that they've courted that are all, you know, demons and monsters. They have they have money, they have connections, and Bill Clinton has swag. So that's the gist of it, is Bill may or may not be a liability, but definitely Definitely, the sex scandals that he is associated with are a huge part of what turn establishment Democrats against the Clintons. Let's move on to the guy they lose to, Barack Obama. Slash Barry Sorrento is his alternate name. Are you familiar with this conspiracy theory, Kyle? (laughs) No. Why don't you explain it, Jordano? Don't don't look it up on your work computer. There is a allegation that uh, I worked as a gay prostitute in Indonesia (laughs) earlier in my life, in another life. And that prostitute's name was Barry Sorrento, allegedly. (laughs) 
Yeah, so Obama runs this campaign that is very self-consciously high on symbolism. He says that he wants it to be light on policy. He says, you know, Clinton's going to position herself as the policy homework nerd. I'm going to be the symbolism guy. I think that he is probably one of the last major horoscope candidates where he was vague enough that you could see what you wanted to see. I remember thinking Obama was going to end the war and make socialized health care, and you couldn't have convinced me otherwise. I was like, this is what the change is. This is what the change we can all believe in is. Uh, he did not do either of those things. In fact, he ended the war in Iraq and then went back into Iraq. He, actually, he did Iraq twice. <laughs> but people eat this up. And I'm not going to deny that the man can deliver a fucking speech. He has these soaring oratorical abilities. Obama mania was a word that was thrown around at the time and it was real. As the youth would say, he was an icon, he was a legend, he was the moment. When he speaks, it is so difficult to not tear up for me. And for a lot of people who are listening, I'm going to say I'm not a huge fan of Obama and telling a lot of people, if I had told myself that years ago, it would be like telling me Santa Claus doesn't exist or something. But we'll do a separate episode on him, but he had control of the Senate, the house and the presidency two-thirds of the governorships and he didn't take advantage of it and the naive view is that he was too naive and thought that republicans would work with him and the cynical view is that he didn't actually want to have change happen because it would have threatened the reason for his party existing it would have threatened his legacy i am probably as with almost every episode of the pod i am going to be the hater here but like giordano yeah i was all in on obama at the time and i can hear the chorus of voices i can hear the lib obama defenders in my head right now where they're just going to historicize it and they're going to be like well you have to look at how he was obstructed by the by the GOP you need to look at how all of the barriers that were thrown in the way of him doing what he wanted to be the motherfucking Joe Biden whose brain is broken <laughs> is going to give us student debt relief he's going to give us some marijuana reform he's he already has more victories than Obama with so much less legislative power with the Democrats in such a weaker position mm -hmm. Obama had this tremendous opportunity that he just fumbled so fucking hard. Yeah, again, taking the more cynical view. The thing that almost freaks me out about him is this sense you have of he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, underneath all the rhetoric is this sense of, yeah, if he wanted to do this stuff, he could have. And therefore, an easy conclusion to draw is he didn't want to and this stuff didn't matter to him. This guy who had this huge mandate and then didn't care enough to do anything and didn't want to. My theory is that it would have been disruptive and he would have been yelled at. He would have been yelled at by people that he didn't want to get yelled at by. He would have been yelled at by like lib elites in the cities. And that's the people whose opinions he cares about more than anything else. We've talked about his flaws, but let's just talk about Obama in this campaign. He, like Ben said, he's an icon. And I think what made him so attractive to a lot of people is this idea that this is a quote that I found that said to whites, he's made clear that he's the bearer of racial redemption, not racial grievance, even extending public absolution. It's clear when he speaks that he believes in America, or at least ostensibly, and people, when they hear him speak, it gives you an idea of what America could be, and that's what was very attractive about what he was presenting. Yeah, there's a, a great quote from the book Game Change, which we both read in preparation for this pod, where Michelle didn't want him to run, and she asked him point blank, why should he be president? And Obama said... Well, there are a lot of things I think I can accomplish, but two things I know. The 
first is, when I raise my hand and take that oath of office, there are millions of kids around the country who don't believe that it would ever be possible for them to be president of the United States. And for them, the world would change on that day. And the second is, I think the world would look at us differently the day I got elected because it would be a reaffirmation of what America is, about the constant perfecting of who we are. Those are two symbolic victories. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to poo-poo on symbolism entirely. I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that, that like symbols don't matter. But healthcare would be cool too, you know? <laughs> Maybe we can't rely on the symbolism to do all the work. The same idea expressed a different way from that book. Obama began to entertain the notion that he tapped into something remarkable, that by virtue of what he represented, he might be able to affect change on a global scale. Just the representation, we're all fine and good. The details will work themselves out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he won the Nobel Peace Prize on that, just like what he represented <laughs> yes. like without actual any substance. Damn, McCain was right. He was all civil. <laughs> no stake. I'm going to move us along to John McCain. As we have said, the Republicans are doomed to lose this election. And John McCain gave them the best chance that they had, I think, because of his reputation as a maverick, as someone who occasionally voted against Republicans, like 11% of the time. <laughs> yeah. He was against torture. You know, he's very progressive. <laughs> he was against torturing people. Yes. But like an absolute national security psycho, war hawk. Ben, you said that if he had won this election, we would have 1,000% invaded Libya, Syria. Throwing Yemen for good measure. Oh, Iran. Like Iran. Yeah, yeah there yeah. would have been so many more wars in the Middle East. That old Beach Boy song, Bomb Iran. <laughs> And yeah, I think he ran a campaign in 2000 against Bush, which he lost. And so he could get a little bit of that anti-Bush flavor while still being a Republican. He could try. I mean, he was never going to win, but that if they wanted to have a chance, this is the best they could possibly do. Listen, say what you will about him. Hell of a pilot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've always been something of a risk taker. before crashing his plane into the the Delaware River. I I believe he's crashed something between three and five planes. He's awesome. Awesome. Harrison Ford's coming for him, though. He's coming for those numbers. Harrison Ford just crashed one, like, at a golf course. That was actually a radical political act. He just missed all the the wealthy golfers. Uh, Also in the 2008 Republican nomination fight was one Mitt Romney, who we would see again in 2012 as a standard bearer for the Republican Party. Yeah, he lost because he had done some damning things like help people get access to health care in Massachusetts. <laughs> but the funniest thing I saw when I was reading about this is the van that they drove around in the bus was called the Mittmobile. And then it had a subtitle, which was a five brothers bus. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like a porno, but his name was named because his five sons accompanied him on the campaign trail. Yeah, that was also the name of Tracy Morgan's bus that got hit by the tractor trailer from Walmart. (laughs) So his five very Mormon sons accompany him. And again, just like a sign of the times in 2007, the criticism he gets is reporters saying, why aren't your sons fighting in Iraq right now? <laughs> and then the controversy was that his his response was, well, one of the ways they're supporting our nation is helping me get elected. And then people got really pissed that he compared campaigning mm-hmm. to fighting in Iraq. Dude. Uh, 
Okay, so we've introduced our characters. Let's move on to the election itself. As we already stressed, this thing's a slam dunk for the Dems, a doomed cause for the Republicans. So we're going to blitz through the Republican primaries really yeah. quickly. And one thing to note, by the way, is that this is the first election since 1952 that a sitting president or sitting vice president is not running in the race. That's why it's such an exciting election is you have this huge cast of characters on both sides because the George Bush administration is so unpopular that Dick Cheney he's not going to run for president at the end of that term. No, in fact, Dick Cheney endorses McCain right before the election just to <laughs> torpedo him, just, just to, to spite with him because he knows that his endorsement is a kiss of death. Yeah, because McCain didn't go along with his torture agenda. <laughs> <laughs> So fucking funny. We're going to really blitz through the GOP primary because it doesn't produce as many entertaining things, fewer scandals, fewer japes. Early on, Rudy Giuliani is a national front runner, the 9-11 mayor, but he's too liberal for the GOP. He's on his third wife, who was the mistress while he was with his second wife. He's pro-gay rights. He's pro-gun control. Quite comically, the more Republican voters saw of Rudy Giuliani, the less and less he was liked by them. Yeah, he's he's got that repulsion factor that you just you can't really do much about it's a true eldritch horror for radio something from an hp lovecraft novel really <laughs> it's funny that he's always been a goof now he's considered this comical mime for the trump campaign and then even in 2008 people they were like oh well rudy giuliani is the front runner and everyone who was like in the politics industry was like yeah but rudy's rudy <laughs> he's gonna fuck it up he's a goof <laughs> yeah <laughs> we have john mccain the former fighter pilot POW Republican senator since the 80s who becomes the presumptive front runner fairly early. He has a famous temper in the book Game Change. One chapter just opens with John McCain double flipping off his wife Cindy with two fingers <laughs> just saying fuck 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 you <laughs> to his wife. So yeah he's, he's an angry Arizona Republican with a bitch wife <laughs> all you need to know about John McCain. I swear when you start talking to me i'd rather be in that tiger cage right now <laughs> and he also despite being a very old man he never had the biden foible of seeming like a weird old maybe demented man mm -hmm. he always just had the sense of oh your your age means experience not that your brain has become mush yeah definitely and libs loved him he went on john stewart's show like 13 times he was during the darkest age of the bush era he was held up by the lib media as Oh, here's the one who's opposed to torture. Here's the one who's opposed to reckless task cuts. And as Jordano said, sometimes. But as soon as he entered this race, the media turns on him and he gets very mad about it. Like he got off on Libs loving him and it was all taken mm -hmm. away from him. Should we move on to the Democratic primary? Yeah. The, the, this, is the, this is the good stuff. Yeah, it's the good stuff. So it's 2006 and Harry Reid floats the idea to Obama that he should run for president. Like Ben said, a lot of the establishment Democrats are they're ostensibly supporting Hillary because she's just this giant political machine, but they're really sick of Clinton bullshit. They're charities, Bill's sex crimes. <laughs> <laughs> And you start to get this rumbling that people think Obama should run because he gave this amazing speech at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. We all remember it. It was an iconic moment. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States. 
of America. There are no red states and blue states, is the thing. And Hillary starts getting mad at Obama for skipping the line. You know, she's like, I helped you. I was fun with you. <laughs> we had fun at those fundraisers. <laughs> they start with the word fun. She's getting frustrated that someone is, is skipping the line to take her turn at being president. Mm -hmm. And David Geffen, I'm going to give him as an example because he's a microcosm of the media obsession with Obama. He's a Hollywood producer. He's one of the richest people in the United States. And he started palling around with Obama. And despite being like a Hillary supporter at one point, was telling him, you should run. I'll I'll help you out. I'll support you. And it's funny because we looked him up, this David Geffen character. And this happens every time you look up one of like, the Democratic donors that is talked about <laughs> it during this campaign. They're all monsters. <laughs> <laughs> you look at the table of contests on the Wikipedia and there's going to be something that says scandals, like crimes, controversies. <laughs> yeah. David Geffen, for example, is the highest polluting American. So of Ooh, all what? 350 million, he's the one that does the most pollution. He has several billion dollar boats. He fought the state of California for a decade to deny the public access to a public beach <laughs> spent millions of dollars doing so so these are the dem power brokers we all love to hate on the Koch brothers but the democrats have their share of soulless monsters as well yeah and i think one thing you gotta know about the early stages of this election is that the contrast that obama is gonna draw with hillary on top of the establishment versus change narrative because clinton has been around for so long and he's a brush of fresh air that's a big part of it but the iraq war is such a big issue in the early stages of election before the economic collapse of 08 starts to happen, where Barack Obama, he kept saying, I voted against the war. He was an Illinois state senator. He wasn't <laughs> voting on the war. He was in state level politics, but he got to dodge it because Hillary voted for it. Mm -hmm. And this really defines the contrast. And I'm going to play a little clip here and uh, of Hillary defending her war vote, which is probably the single issue that gave her the most trouble while running for president. You said that if you were president in 2002, to, you would have not gone into war. Right. However, how can you then explain the seeming contradiction from your voting to support the invasion? I do not believe that most of us who voted to give the president authority thought he would so misuse the authority we gave him. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I am fun. I, I admit I wasn't fun at that time. I have since become fun. <laughs> My brain spent so much time trying to process her cadence that I honestly missed the content. I didn't hear anything she said because all I was hearing was that bizarre da 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 that no sentence should ever actually work with. Yeah, just like the worst spoken word poetry cadence. It's not how human speech works at all. No. No. You just had like a William Shatner cadence. Early on, this is the contrast that we're going to get between these two. Change, establishment, pro-war, anti-war. I was going to quickly say, because you had mentioned that Obama kind of gets to skirt around this all and, and sort of dodge the issue. But he voted to confirm Condoleezza Rice as Secretary of State, mm -hmm. someone who was hugely involved in selling the WMD propaganda and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the Hillary campaign gets so mad about. There's a literal Obama quote where in 2004, so after the war has started, he said he doesn't know if he would do anything differently than George W. Bush. But the media never nails him on it. I don't want to sound like an angry Fox News grandpa here, but the media absolutely tries to spike it for Clinton and put some wind in the sails for Obama. 1000%. You cannot overstate how much the media loved Obama during this election. He was their darling. He's the exact type of person that appeals to someone who studied journalism at Dartmouth and then got a job <laughs> at the New York Times. And they're so unfair to Hillary. If she makes any kind of gap, 
laugh like at all. They will pounce on her for it. And I almost was laughing at the idea of her running with Trump for president on an anti-media platform. Okay, so the Iowa caucus, as you all know, the Iowa caucus is the first state to vote in the primaries. And as a result, it's extremely influential because it gives people an idea of who is the front runner? Who can we put our support behind? Who has momentum? And the demographics there are a certain way. It's like a Midwestern state. And Obama owes maybe his entire election to his performance in this state. It's also a caucus, which is a a very strange sort of primary where you need to find people who are willing to wait around for eight hours at a polling place to work out the results. It's one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders does so well in a caucus is because he has the most fervent supporters who will stick around for that long, unlike a, a normal primary where, you know, you show up and you vote. Yeah. And the demographics didn't favor Clinton because even though it's a a Midwest kind of right wing state, they have a peacenik streak. They have a dove streak, the Iowa Democrats, and they skew a little bit left. And there's also a bunch of colleges in some part of the state. So the funniest thing in the lead up to this is that there is an internal memo among Team Hillary and all of the Team Hillary people, Game Change gets this across. They all don't like each other and they all disagree on what the one strategy should be. And one of these motherfuckers bungles it so hard where there's an internal memo that says Hillary can't win here. The demographics aren't in our favor. The structure isn't in our favor. We should cut our losses, focus on the next one, the New Hampshire primary, instead of this caucus. There's an internal strategy document that he accidentally CCs to the media. So the entire media knows that internally her own people are saying Hillary can't win, which now their decision is, you know what? We just need to win even harder to prove that, you know, this didn't matter. Yeah. And anytime you hear about Hillary's campaign in this election, it feels so much like the show Veep. It's people scrambling to fix their mistakes. And not only that, but in competition with each other Mm -hmm. constantly. And it's always very funny when a scandal comes in and they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to figure out how to solve it while also advancing their own political career. And one of the things that's so funny is that the Clintons are a juggernaut of fundraising. They're on all the sex planes, (laughs) which is where we know all the big money is. And the book makes clear that it clears the field. They're so well connected. Same thing happens in 2016. It's just the independent socialist who's willing to take on the risk because who would ever dare campaign against this juggernaut? And when you see it in practice, it's David versus Goliath, but Goliath trips on his sandal strap and falls on his own sword and dies because Hillary spends $29 million in this state and she gets 70,000 votes. That comes out to $414 per vote. To come in third. (laughs) To come in third place. She spent over $400 per person to get them to agree that she was fun. (laughs) It's just... And so one of the problems with her campaign is that she raises the most money, but she also is constantly running out of money. At one point, she has to lend her campaign $5 million out of her personal funds. And it's like, stop spending so much because it's clearly not doing anything for you. You think that money is the key to getting people to like you more, but maybe you should just go on TV and go to some town halls. Right. Yeah. Eat some meat that's had horrible things done to it in Iowa. Have a beer. (laughs) Display one identifiable emotion. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
Yeah. Honestly, pick anyone. That's actually <laughs> true. She could pick any emotion and it would instantly make people feel more connected to her. Doesn't matter which one. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Kyle. That's actually a beautiful segue because Hillary loses Iowa and moves on to New Hampshire. And this is a huge wake up call for her. It's very destabilizing when she loses Iowa because like Ben said, she had cleared the field. It was just some guy named like Iraq Hussein <laughs> that, that was going up against her. And Iraq now, Hussein Osama. Iraq Hussein Osama. <laughs> And now she's losing and at first she's scrambling and she's like, maybe people just don't like me before quickly pivoting to, we need to investigate cheating. He had people bust in from Illinois. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And one of the most cathartic parts of this book, just researching this campaign, was reading about Hillary losing her mind as Barack starts to beat her early on in 2007, because she basically assumed that she would win for two years. And then as soon as someone starts to edge in, she's losing in her mind. She's yelling at her staff. Here's a great quote from shortly after Iowa. Hillary started talking to her finance director, noting that Obama was raking in money selling T-shirts, buttons, posters with his campaign logo on them. He has a retail merchandise business going. Why aren't we doing more of that? Hillary began to unravel. We're losing the small donor race. Her voice began to rise. Why are we losing? What do we need to do? I just don't understand. Hillary was nearly screaming now, gesturing outside. She exclaimed, why don't we have any merchandise being sold out back? We could have set up tables. There was a lot of things her finance minister wanted to say um, because you're not leading a movement because your donors aren't college kids because we're in the Hamptons. (laughs) (laughs) I do kind of feel bad for Hillary sometimes, but she does have the loser mindset. She has a loser mentality. Mm -hmm. It's not a money growth success mindset mentality that she has. So she rolls into the New Hampshire primary, which is the second state to vote. And Hillary's aides are telling her she may want to drop out to save face. And she is not passing a lot of sanity check. She (laughs) is in a town hall and she starts to break down and and tear up a bit. And there's a small media cycle about this. At first, people are jumping on her. They're saying that she's weak, that she's faking it for sympathy. There's a clip of Edwards saying, you know, it's tough being on the campaign trail, but being president's a tougher job. And there is a huge, huge backlash against this criticism of her, rightly so, saying that when women cry, it's unacceptable. It shows that you're weak. And yet when men cry, they they say that uh, he's sensitive. Bill Clinton was one of the first presidents to cry in public. It was great for his poll numbers. (laughs) Once you learn to fake sincerity, you got it made. And so this humanizes her. Hillary constantly cucks herself with her refusal to display human behavior because she thinks it'll make her look weak. But every time she does it, it just gives her this big boost. And so the only takeaway that I have from this is that she's just incapable of showing emotion. Yeah, and it's also wrapped up in her stupid foreign policy takes on Iraq. She can't say I was wrong to vote for the war because it would show weakness. She's always obsessed with showing weakness. She must project strength, always. But in this instance, I remember this media cycle about her crying. I remember people, oh, she's faking it. She's so desperate. She's doing this. She wins New Hampshire. And now we got ourselves a stew. Now we got ourselves a race between these two. Because there was a moment there where the media was saying, maybe Obama's just going to take it all. Maybe Hillary won't win a single one. The granite woman wins the granite state. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) (laughs) The headline of the New York Post. (laughs) 
So now we move on. We're in late Jan, early February now. We're moving on to Nevada, South Carolina, and eventually Super Tuesday. Now here's where the race gets uh, gets a little fraught. Yeah, this is where the race wars start. <laughs> Both sides start playing, quote unquote, the race card, as they dub it, like crazy. And it's sort of like a game of nuclear brinksmanship. Who's going to launch it first, right? Because Clinton really wants to portray Obama as the black candidate, whereas Obama wants to portray himself as a black candidate. And so Clinton is like trying to make him into like a Jesse Jackson type, Mm. right? Yeah, Jesse Jackson ran for president twice in the 1980s, famously endorsed by one Bernard Sanders, mayor of Burlington, Vermont. But he's a reverend that white people are afraid of. Yeah, he speaks to racial grievance, right? Mm -hmm. Not racial redemption. And so the Clintons try and tie Obama to Jesse Jackson. And there's more. A story gets published that claims Bill Clinton said, "Uh, MLK had a dream. Barack Obama has a fairy tale. You're into a Bill O'Biden Fuck. a little bit there. <laughs> Here, you take, you take a swing at it. Yeah, so he's uh, Bill Clinton says, uh, you know, I would point to the fact that uh, Dr. King's dream began to realize when President Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and was able to get it through Congress. Uh, so it was the president who got done racial justice, not MLK. <laughs> One of the worst takes of all time. (laughs) Isn't he also the one who did the direct Jesse Jackson comparison when Obama wins South Carolina being like, yeah, you know, uh, Jesse Jackson did the same thing. So, you know, good for him. Good for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incredibly patronizing. Incredibly, like literally just a white savior narrative of civil rights. Yeah. Like, I'm okay. He did all right. I guess he got arrested a few times and like assaulted by police officers. But, you know, takes a president. It took a president, someone who was able to get things done in Congress to help us and so clinton after this reacted very poorly those assholes they twisted my words how dare they write that i'm racist after everything i did as governor for civil rights shit after everything i did as president i don't have a racist bone in my body doubt (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like after everything you did as president i seem to remember a certain crime bill championed by one joe brandon at the time yeah the man played saxophone right hall (laughs) i think he gets a pass if Hillary played the saxophone, honestly, she might have won this primary. It would have just shown that she was fun a little bit. If Hillary played an instrument, it would be like the harp or something. Uh, I play uh, harpsichord. The piano is a little too newfangled for me. I'm a quarter. So the race wars are raging on who plays a race car. And I remember part of the discourse was about how Obama wasn't going to go negative. He was going to have a new kind of campaigning because people forget, especially since how hard George W. Bush has been rehabilitated, how dirty you used to be with your attack ads in politics. John McCain in 2000 had an adopted Bangladeshi daughter and Karl Rove with the Bush campaign implied that it was a bastard child had out of wedlock with a black prostitute in order to make him look bad for South Carolina line of racist. So it used to be very no holds barred, very negative. And Obama made a whole big show about how he wasn't going to go negative. This was very annoying because everyone wants to go negative. So they'll have their surrogates do it or they'll imply it. And Obama really lucks out because the media will make that final push. Obama will do the gesture. Obama will imply something about the Clintons and the media will get it just over the finish line to work as the attack on the Clintons. It was a brilliant strategy. So we roll into South Carolina and there's a debate there. And this is a dogfight. By this point the candidates do not like each other (laughs) at all and i'm going to play a couple clips from that debate from some of the haymakers that were thrown because while i was working on those streets watching those folks see their jobs shipped overseas you were a corporate lawyer sitting on the board of walmart i was fighting these fights 
You talked about Ronald Reagan being a transformative political leader. I did not mention his name. Your husband you, did. Well, I'm here. He's okay, not. Well, and I can't tell who I'm running I against know, sometimes. Well, you know, I, I think we both have very passionate and committed spouses who stand up for us, and I'm proud of that. Uh, but you also talked about the Republicans having ideas over the last 10 to 15 years. I didn't years. say they were good ones. Well, you can read the context of it. Well, it certainly I didn't came say they were good to, ones. Well, it certainly, right, well, well, it certainly yeah. came across in the way that I'm just reacting to the fact, yes, they did have ideas, and they were bad ideas, bad for that. America. And I was fighting against those ideas when you were practicing law and representing your contributor, Resco, in his slum landlord business in inner city Chicago. Oh, no, 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 no. So yeah, we're getting some real nasty comments from both <laughs> from both candidates. And that Ronald Reagan was mentioned there in the debate because Barack Obama was being interviewed and he said that over the last 30 years, the Republican Party has been the party of ideas, that Reagan had introduced an ideology to America and that the Democrats were lagging in ideology, which is true. Yep. That's what she was jumping on him for. It's one of the most true things Obama has ever said, that the Republicans actually actually believe in something. They have an ideology. They believe in like small government. Rolling back the welfare state to about reconstruction levels, ideally, and uh, maybe some racial politics from that era as well. Who knows? And what is the Democrats' ideology? If you look at Clinton's term as president, who's been the only Democratic president since Reagan at this time, he did all of those things that fall into the Republican playbook. Mm -hmm. Rolling back welfare, doing the crime bill. That's what he was pointing out, that the, the Democratic Party does not have an ideology. Correct. Yes. Certainly not a coherent one. Mm. No. Yeah. And that's always been the thing that the Republicans, it's monstrous and it's horrifying, but my God, can they organize around goals and then <laughs> take coherent steps to achieve them, yeah. uh, which is literally not something the Democrats have been able to do for decades. Yeah. Even recently, the Republicans, they overturned Roe v. Wade and it shot themselves in the foot in this like, last election, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I, you, you could just never imagine the Democrats shooting themselves in the foot in advance of their ideological goals. They're not going to make a Medicare for all the law of the land, even if they're worried about the result. Yeah, just win. Just win the politics with as little policy as possible. Just to wrap up the debate, the debate is really awesome. They get back to their teams between rounds and it's almost like a boxing match where each team is giving them advice. Obama's team's telling him, easy, Barack, you're going to look like an angry black man out there. Try to keep the focus away from it looking like you versus Bill. People like Bill. And Hillary's in the other corner and and she's apologizing to her staff saying, I'm sorry, but he was such an asshole out there. They're at each other's throats for sure. Edwards was also on stage, but he will <laughs> drop out uh, right after this. The best line of the debate is the Bill line, though. It's so good. I don't know who I'm running against, you or Bill. Do the voice. he's just been this weird meddling, creepy force in the background. <laughs> yeah, the do do the voice, Kyle. Do the voice of a different race. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who I'm running against. <laughs> We haven't really talked about John Edwards, so I'll just quickly introduce him. He's also running with Hillary and Barack. He's not that far behind them. He only finishes one delegate behind Hillary in Iowa. At this point, Obama wins South Carolina. Super Tuesday is, is a tie, and Edwards drops out. His star is falling very quickly. In fact, one of the most entertaining chapters of the book, Game Change, is Edwards actually seemed to be somewhat principled of a politician, but as soon as he has national media 
attention. He absolutely is corrupted by the power it affords him. And people viewed him very sympathetically because his wife had cancer. Game Change quotes a focus group member who must have been fucking Larry David because his focus group member said, I like that he has a fat wife. <laughs> and he knocks up this woman who is obsessed with him and is, gets herself hired by his team against his team's wishes to do the vlog, essentially, of their mm -hmm. of the campaign. And she's like a granola, reiki, good astrology kind of person. Rayal Hunter. And his team is like, please do not sleep with her because my career is tied up in how well this campaign goes. <laughs> it would just be really good if you didn't sleep with her and have it ruin the campaign. And he's like, uh, I don't want to talk about it. Don't worry, I'm not. And then it was just became more and more clear to everybody that he was sleeping with her. And eventually he gets her pregnant. And his campaign manager is like, listen, we've been friends for years. Can you just stop sleeping with her? <laughs> he just loses his mind. He unravels. I'm begging you, bro. <laughs> like, man, this is our job. We're going to get hired somewhere else based on our performance here. Sleep with literally anybody else. Just pick <laughs> any other person than this person right now. <laughs> you're, th you're throwing away the career of 40 people to bust. Yeah, he cheats on his cancer-stricken wife that people liked for this granola videographer, gets her pregnant, and now he has a ticking time bomb, which is the birth of his child, to negotiate his position because they're dodging the story. It's only in the National Enquirer. There's some deniability. He admits to the affair but denies paternity, and it's just this slow burn of this man's descent, and he's trying to negotiate a position in the next administration. At one point, he legitimately thinks he has a shot to be attorney general. He eventually settles for a speaking spot at the convention and then loses that. My fee is $175 an hour. We pay $8 for the night and you can take two popsicles out of the freezer. Three. Two. Okay, two. And I get to keep this old birdcage. Done. Still got it. Now the primaries become a marathon. Obama thought he could lock it up with a few early victories. Hillary stops that. Super Tuesday gets split. Now we're going all the way to the convention, baby. It's yeah, going to so be a drag out fight. It's going to be a war of attrition. McCain has already locked it up, but Barack and Hillary are going to have to fight it out. And each side, it's like World War One, where they're, they're looking into any edge that they can get, right? Gas, planes, whatever. But in this case, it's what gaff can we just blow completely out of proportion? And one of the most notable is when the Jerry Jeremiah Wright tapes are released. Tapes of Barack Obama's pastor who had married him and his wife and according to Obama helped him sort of rediscover his Christianity. He is awesome. He has awesome <laughs> he has awesome politics that are correct. Yeah, he seems to rule is the best impression that I have based on these quotes. Yeah, he has two speeches that go viral because these were speeches that he had made in church that were filmed and the church sold tapes. So he's talking, he's inspired by the Bible from the Red Rend unto Caesar what is unto Caesar, and rend unto God what is unto God. And he's talking about Caesar as government. And the speech is called God Damn America instead of God Bless America. I think we can play the climax of that right now. Let's get Scooter. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government 
gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. Because the stuff we have done overseas is now brought right back into our own front yards. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Show me the lie. <laughs> Show me one untruth. I'm sorry, we, we gotta get some fact checkers in this. I think the fact checkers are, are, are saying uh, 100% certified fresh. <laughs> or whatever it is the, the fact checkers say. <laughs> are we using the tomato meter? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't put that together when I was in high school. I was like, oh yeah, wow, this guy's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> but when you actually listen to his speeches now, you're like, oh, you know, he's just saying things that are true. But America is not interested in the politics of racial grievance, especially at this time. They're not interested in the truth of empire, Man, the line that sticks out to me from 2008 was the chickens coming home to roost because he's talking about 9-11. It's like, how dare you say that? But objectively, facts don't care about your feelings. America gave fucking radical Islamic terrorists that they care about fighting now so much, gave them billions of dollars in the 1980s. This is just an objectively true thing that happened. And also the idea of, yeah, why are other countries mad at us? Let's just take a quick flip through the history books and see maybe what could have led to this position where there are other people who want to see America fail. Uh, oh, oh, we did a lot of horrendous <laughs> things to a lot of places and are still doing it. But it's the first, I think, big glimpse at the fact that like Obama's not necessarily a guy who's going to stand by his convictions and that if mm -hmm. when the pressure actually comes and the risk of unpopularity arises, that he's just going to walk. He's going to... I disagree because... He's going to... Fold. No, 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 He's no, going to no. fold like a house of cards. But that's not what happened. You said the same thing about this incident. And I was like, no, what I remember from this is Barack Obama standing by him and saying, listen, and I'll play the clip actually, but I thought that he did one of the most amazing political jujitsu moves of all time. It was hurting him in the polls. And he told his team, I want to make a speech on race. And they were like, we really don't think you should. And he said, listen, I'm going to give this speech and I might lose, but I've said what I need to say and we'll see what happens and so this is what he says in response i have already condemned in unequivocal terms the statements of reverend wright that have caused such controversy as imperfect as he may be he has been like family to me i can no more disown him than i can disown my white grandmother a woman who loves me as much as she loves anything in this world but a woman who once confessed her fear of black men who passed her by on the street these people are part of me and they are part of America, this country that I love. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society. It's that he spoke as if our society was static. What we know is that America can change. It is the best jujitsu of all time because he tries to weave that fine line. He says, I can't disown him. He refuses to disown him because I think some voices on the right were saying, why won't he disown this? He does call all of the statements with this broad brush reprehensible mm. or whatever he says. He does right. throw everything Jeremiah Wright said, throws it out, out, out with the trash. He can't even say, well, maybe there's something here. It's like, maybe he expressed it poorly, but you know. Okay, I see what you guys yeah, well, mean. And, then, and he leaves the church. 
he makes a point of publicly separating with him. And okay, I, I see what you guys are, you are saying. Then you guys are saying he didn't defend any of the things that Jeremiah Wright said. He didn't say like, "Hey, take a look at some of those statements." He was spitting fact. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Instead, he's like, listen, this guy is like your uncle at Thanksgiving who says gross things. Yeah, that's exactly. He treats this guy as if he's just a wackadoo guy who's just like, yeah, you know, he uh, he said some uh, cookie stuff. What are you going to do? And um, I don't agree with it. You know, things got out of hand. A politician with some degree of conviction, you would think, could somehow endorse it or at least allude to the, the truth within that. And the funniest thing I learned when prepping for this is Obama met Jeremiah Reich when he was still doing his community organizing thing. And he said it was the social justice aspect of the black church that got him to come back and then he had his two daughters with michelle and they stopped going because life got busy which is such an american approach to christianity this very important thing that's a very important part of me and who i am but listen god knows i'm busy sometimes okay <laughs> game change is like yeah he hadn't been to the church since 2002 and they tried to link him to this you know radical pastor the republicans were desperately looking for one of those videos where you could see obama in the crowds but it doesn't exist because he was skipping church well like i said each side is prying for any kind of gaffe that they can get people to watch on YouTube over and over again. One of which was Snipergate, in which Hillary Clinton came that said that she, when she was in the Balkans, you know, she came in under sniper. I was having fun under sniper fire. (laughs) Seems like it wouldn't be that fun. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out she wasn't having fun and she wasn't coming in under sniper fire. Obama makes sort of a snobbish comment about rural people. He's at a fundraiser in San Francisco and he says, you know, you got these folks in Elvis country and they cling to their guns and religion because they've lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. And it dovetails into a picture that Hillary Clinton was trying to paint of Obama, of this elitist, someone who was in the ivory tower, which yep. is very funny because <laughs> she spends the other half of her slander campaign on painting him as like a dashiki wearing black nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to portray him as a, an out of touch man up in the ebony tower because he's still a black nationalist, but also a snob who looks down on you. And it's such a contradiction to be like, oh, he's a black nationalist, but he's also an elitist from the East Coast or whatever. He's in the Ebony Tower. He's, you know what? Uh, once you go skiing on Kilimanjaro, you lose interest in the Bunny Hills of Michigan. Uh, <laughs> black people, we didn't land at Plymouth Rock. We landed at uh, more Martha's Vineyard people, actually. <laughs> when I go back to the motherland Africa, the beautiful dark continent, I like to have my favorite foods. Lobster Thermidor, Beef Wellington. <laughs> I uh, sent Sasha and Malia to a private boarding school. The We Was Kings boarding school in Westchester, Connecticut. (laughs) I wish you were a hotep, man. It would rock. And, you know, there's the theories that birtherism, which has its roots in this campaign, that Hillary Clinton's campaign may have subtly helped foster that and Mm -hmm. helped put the word out there of maybe this guy's not American. Maybe he was maybe he's actually Kenyan and all these different things, which obviously then spiral out of control and uh, result again just like another funny link to 2016 with trump and everything around this time late in the campaign ted kennedy endorses obama and that becomes a huge swing in his camp it sort of represents the end of this shift in the democratic establishment going towards obama yeah and it's very funny bill clinton's on the record being so mad at ted kennedy for all the favors he's done for the kennedys the clintons and the kennedys are tight they vacation together as you know political royalty and the list of favors that he did the kennedy family one of them was like i kept the coast guard out looking for jfk jr's plane i let a lot of good sailors die to keep looking for that rich boy (laughs) 
<laughs> Come on, Ted. After all the sex crimes we did together, you can't throw me this one. So yes, late May, early June, it's the Avengers Endgame, and Hillary does not have a path, mathematically. The only way she could do it is with these stupid superdelegates that the Democratic Party has, where she could get insiders to just take it away from Obama, even though he got hundreds of thousands more votes than her. And there's this non-scandal line where Hillary is asked why she isn't dropping out. It's early June. And she says, well, uh, first of all, I am fine. Second second off, uh, lots of politicians went all the way to June. As we all remember, Bobby Kennedy was shot in June while campaigning for the presidency. So what I think happened here is that Hillary Clinton's stupid boomer brain wanted to show off how good at homework she was. And we all know where we were when the second best Kennedy was assassinated, right? (laughs) So she wanted to show off that she knew that, oh yeah, it was in June of 68 during the Democratic primaries in California that he got shot. But the media turned this into Hillary Clinton staying in race in hope that Barack Obama gets assassinated. <laughs> Just an incredibly bad faith reading of that quote. Yeah, I mean, that's this is an example of the media being in the bag for Obama. She makes this clumsy comment about Bobby Kennedy and they jump all over it and they're like, she's, she's hoping that he gets assassinated. Hey, another one for the Clinton body count. Just <laughs> <laughs> racking them up. <laughs> I was thinking earlier when you were talking about uh, Hillary Clinton being pissed they're not selling things. I just imagining the, the modern day post-ironic uh, approach of just selling t-shirts that just say Clinton Crime Syndicate or selling like, <laughs> yes. body bags. Absolutely. <laughs> They were probably so close to doing that because their campaign is so in debt by the end of it because they thought that spending money was the solution to everything. They actually spent, I think, more than Obama. It's a Clinton 2016 t-shirt. Has Jeffrey Epstein's face. (laughs) Remember what we're capable of. (laughs) If they're going to spend $40 on it, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so she loans her campaign $5 million. And by the end of this process, she's mostly concerned with getting that $5 million back. And so she goes to Obama to extract concessions from him. She wants to say, I'll drop out. Do you want me to give a speech at the convention? Also, can you forgive my campaign debt? And he's like, okay, I'll I'll give you $100,000. How much were you looking for? And she's pissed because she wanted $2 million from him. Yeah, for what? In this late process, she takes her time dropping out. She takes her time endorsing him. She's not ready to bury the hatchet just yet. Is this not just the definition of extortion? (laughs) (laughs) This thing that you really want and that you need right now, I'll give it to you for $2 million. For money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that in the Game Change book. Bill Clinton remembers every appointment he made as president and expects those people to now endorse him. It's like, yeah, that's just corruption. It's just nepotism. But doggone it, he can't remember the flights he took. It's funny. How- <laughs> <laughs> Selective memory. Yeah. So we're hurtling towards the general election. Obama has his nomination. McCain has his. First order of business in the lead up to their big conventions is finding a running mate. And John McCain, he was the media's glasses conservative, good conservative. He needs to make a major change. He needs to challenge the narrative of continuity versus change because he's running as a Republican to succeed George W. Bush. He initially plans to offer the vice presidentship to his friend, Joe Lieberman, a former Democrat, now independent, who's totally persona non grata for the GOP. Joe Lieberman was pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage. He was a moderate Democrat. He was a moderate just in the sense that he was an absolute war hawk psycho, Mm -hmm. which is why he and John McCain got
got along. But he seriously entertained the notion of doing a bipartisan national unity ticket to show, look, I'm the real change. Obama's a partisan hack. I'm doing this. But the GOP insiders essentially told him to go fuck himself and that the party would not fund that presidential election campaign if he tried to pull that shit. Yeah, and he always likes to think of himself as a maverick, someone who bucks what people normally think. And, and he thought he was doing that with Sarah Palin, but I guess in a way, choosing Lieberman would have been doing that more so. His campaign mantra for the general election was that he was putting country first. John McCain puts country over party. And he does exactly not that <laughs> <laughs> with his choice because he's got a problem in the general election. Obama is a celebrity. People love him. He's an icon. He has this immense presence. He's a symbol. Like Don Draper says, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. <laughs> and that's what John McCain effectively is trying to do is, is steal some of this celebrity spotlight away. And if he chooses like another old white guy, then Obama's going to stay the media focus. Cool, hip, young. Right. And so they find this backwater governor <laughs> from Alaska named Sarah Palin. And it works. McCain is behind by as much as nine points after the Democratic convention. And after they nominate Sarah Palin, interest in the Republican Party skyrockets. They end up being neck and neck. And for months after she is named the running mate, nine of the 10 most Googled search terms were centered around Sarah Palin. She absolutely had that ability to steal attention and spotlight and media coverage away from Obama. What were the search terms? <laughs> Feet. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm wondering. <laughs> At least eight out of nine were weird sex things. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, with that. Yeah, I remember Lisa Ann was the like the big Sarah Palin porn star. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> the kind of stuff you can only get on the Remember Shuffle podcast. <laughs> and it's so funny. It, it really paints a picture of what the Republican field is like at this period of time, where to find anyone who somehow brings any ounce of difference or diversity or however you want to frame it to the ticket, they end up in. Alaska. <laughs> yeah. It's the last frontier, Kyle. That's what the state's nicknamed. <laughs> With this person who literally nobody outside of Alaska had ever heard of. Sarah Palin went from being someone who occupied zero of my synapses to suddenly being everywhere overnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just remarkable. They plucked her out of the ether and then <laughs> she was just everywhere. Yeah. And she'd only been governor for 18 months and they were sort of running on this platform of experience, but they wasted so much time looking for a running mate because they considered Lieberman for so long that they had five days left to make a decision. And they ended up putting Palin in front of McCain and him saying, uh, Watch, give, me the, give it to me straight. Watch the situation. <laughs> and uh, his campaign manager said, high risk, high reward. Mm -hmm. And McCain said, Whoa. well, you know, I've, I've been a risk taker my whole life. <laughs> That's what he says before he crashed every plane. And so they have to vet her in five days and they ask her some questions like, do you believe in the theory of evolution? Which, by the way, again, red flag, red flag. <laughs> if that's one of the 10 questions you have to ask the person you're vetting, because mm -hmm. you have to assume that's not on the standard list of vetting questions. <laughs> <laughs> they had to literally be like, oh, we got to check in on that evolution thing. <laughs> and the Imagine contrast the between the vetting that Sarah Palin gets, this rush job, not asking some very important important ones like her husband appears to have been a member of the Alaska Independence Party, a secessionist party for a number of years. That crops up later when journalists dig it up in Alaska because, yeah, 
Yeah, they're going to go up there. They're going to crash the Alaska State website learning who this person is. The contrast between that and the Democratic process, which we'll get into after, but I just want to put this punchline here. They checked Biden's finances so thoroughly that Obama roasted him because he chose the poorest senator in history (laughs) because Biden was so bad at corruption. I think it was mostly just going to Hunter or whatever, but he was so bad at corruption that he had to give his bank statements to Obama and Obama was able to be like, hey, Joe, why are you still poor? (laughs) That's the thing he said to him. Stop spending so much on Cracker Jacks. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to find the toy you want. And again, in terms of red flags for the people doing this vetting process, my understanding is the conversation basically was, hey, can you not ever say anything that we don't tell you to say? And can you never share any of your views and just agree with whatever John McCain thinks? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what they asked her. And Sarah Palin just agreed with all of because she's she's sort of an empty head. And she was like, yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. You know, absolutely. I've seen fossils, you know, like... <laughs> And they're kicking themselves after because when she did start to go off the rails, they were like, oh, yeah, she just agreed to whatever we asked her. McCain's campaign had a big problem with her because as these scandals started to come out about the Alaskan Independence Party, they asked her about all that in the interview. And they were like, we looked into your situation. There's a couple of things that could be problems later on. We just want to get ahead of them and ask you about them now. And she just denied all of it. Yeah, just constantly lied. They were like, we can't ask her about things. We need to ask the media about Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin works for us. (laughs) She was not a reliable source of information for her own staff and what's funny is the extent to which this is a slow motion train wreck because she does crush at the republican national convention oh yeah at first it's a huge huge boon much like the plot of warcraft 3 when grom hellscream decides to use the fell to defeat his enemies eventually it will overcome you and so john mccain who's like this good type of republican is embracing a sort of dark side of republican politics this it the sort of energy that trump will later use and the populism golem of sorts (laughs) yeah (laughs) well i'm not a member of the permanent political establishment Yeah, what's funny is that McCain did have this sterling reputation among certain media sectors, war hero, maverick, Republican, soft-spoken, patriotic, whatever. And he just absolutely torpedoes his entire reputation, (laughs) just immolates it like a monk in Vietnam protesting. (laughs) Yeah, his main criticism of Obama is that he lacks experience. And now Sarah Palin is the potential president if he dies. But she gets up at the Republican National Convention. Everybody's nervous, except for Palin because she's like God will protect me and she just starts riffing and at one point the teleprompter breaks and she starts going off script and we get lines like this I love those hockey moms you know they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull lipstick I guess a small town mayor is sort of like a community organizer except that you have actual responsibilities Boom roasted. Boom. Bam. Bop. Bada bop. Boom. Pow.
Yeah, she crushes. People love her. She's charismatic. She knows how to whip up a crowd. Very Trump-like in her ability to spout surface-level vitriol at her opponent. Yeah, you don't want to ask her any questions, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the key thing. Left to just speak, her brain will auto-generate content forever. I, I think she literally, if you put her on a podium, she could just talk for hours. And to the right crowd, they would love it. Very Trump-like. But as soon as her brain is challenged with, yeah, a question or being asked to recite a fact or access a memory, that's when things really fall apart. Okay, so famously, the campaign is trying to get her up to speed because the media is like, you need to give us some time with her. We, we need to have an interview with her. And the campaign is delaying it as long as possible because they need to teach her all of world history. <laughs> she doesn't understand why Korea is two different countries. They have to explain to her what World War II and the Cold War were. It's pretty confusing that they're both called Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Where are East and West Korea? <laughs> Why are there only two cardinal directions? She famously has this stack of cue cards where she's writing down everything as she's being told. And she's super energetic at the beginning and just like, no, no lunches. Let's keep going. But by the end of the campaign, she has lost all of her sanity points. She is not studying, not practicing. She's not eating carbs anymore because she thinks she looks fat. She's yelling at all of her staffers. She's demanding that they commission polls in Alaska to make sure that her base isn't moving away from her, even though Alaska is the most solidly Republican state in the country. Her form of delusional narcissism is this weirdly parochial one. She wants to do interviews with her hometown Wasilla paper. It's like, motherfucker, you're running on a national ticket. You can get back to Alaska when you lose. So let's get into some of her gaffes. Yeah, so, so finally they have to put her in, in some kind of national media situation. And the campaign agrees that for Katie Couric to do the interview. And the aide that's responsible for prepping her for it is like, listen, I used to work for Katie. I know what she'll ask you. And she's trying to help Sarah, but Sarah at this point is... She's worried about how her hair looks. She's refusing to practice. She'll just sit there silently while people try to ask her questions. At one point, they're worried she's going to have a nervous breakdown. And McCain, who never spoke badly about her, even brings her out to his ranch so she can get some fresh air. But here are some of the questions. Actually, I mean, Sarah Palin made it into our theme song for our show. So she's. She this is one of the most famous parts of the campaign, for sure. What other Supreme Court decisions do you disagree with? Mm. Well... Let's see. There's, of course, in, in the great history of America, there have been rulings that um, there's never going to be absolute consensus by every American. And um, there are those issues, again, like Roe v. Wade, where I believe are best held on a state level and addressed there. So, um, you know, going through the history of America, there, there would be others. But um, can you think of any? Well, I, I would think of, of any, again, that could best be dealt with on a more local level. Maybe I would take issue with, but... Um. And when it comes to establishing your worldview, I was curious, what newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed and to understand the I world? I read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. Like what I mean, specifically? I'm curious that you... Um, all of them, any of them that um, have, have 
been in front of me over all these years. Um, I have a vast, I have a vast variety of sources where we get our news. To- so yeah, she can't name a magazine. <laughs> She's read all of them, dude. It's hard to keep them apart. That's like um like a celebrity Jeopardy SNL question. <laughs> <laughs> name a magazine. Name one new uh, any any written word <laughs> anywhere you've seen words written. <laughs> I read your mother last night. (laughs) I believe I saw her in Penthouse. (laughs) Glade of Heaven moment that the one Supreme Court thing she could think of that she didn't agree with (laughs) is, of course, the one that has actually now been struck down. (laughs) So really, who ended up on the right side of history? It turns out she didn't need to know any other ones. (laughs) See, I would have just been like Dred Scott. I would have gone with the slavery one. You know what? They were wrong on that one. They were wrong when they said it was okay to chase slaves into the northern states and you may quote me on that ma'am and so she's starting to get roasted and people are questioning mccain's ability to make smart decisions he's going to be our president he's the sensible guy and he's old and he's had health scares she's a heartbeat away from the president yeah and she can't name a magazine and getting back into that this is the first youtube election people are watching this i know i watched it with you guys over and over again when this happened and then especially Especially once SNL speaks truth to power (laughs) and does a very famous sketch. You've cited Alaska's proximity to Russia Mm -hmm. as part of your foreign policy experience. What did you mean by that? That Alaska has a very narrow maritime border between a foreign country, Russia, and on our other side, the land uh, boundary that we have with uh, Canada as Putin rears his head and and, uh, comes into the airspace of the United States of America, where where do they go? It's Alaska. It's just right over the border. You've got Alaska here, and this right here is water, and then that's up there's Russia. (laughs) So we keep an eye on them. So once that SNL sketch comes out, now people are watching that over and over again, and it is very funny. I know that I think we have a disagreement about whether or not those sketches are funny. What What do you guys think? I think what it does kind of cleverly is that it doesn't go super crazy over the top. 80% of the skit's humor just comes from Tina Fey doing the voice and doing the accent. Because I'd say most of the actual written word is barely adapted Palin. That's what makes it so funny. Yeah, that's what makes it okay. I guess I just, I didn't find it. I wasn't laughing when I revisited it and watched it. I was more like, oh yeah, right. How about when she says, uh, and I think global warming is just God hugging us closer. That's pretty good. That's that's not bad. It's not bad. It's a hell of an impression. Apparently as soon as she was announced as the vice presidential nominee, Tina Fey immediately got like 15 calls from her fam- friends and family being like, um, this woman who looks exactly like you was just named the vice president. Vice presidential nominee. And so this is tanking McCain's campaign, but we'll get it back into that after we discuss the Democratic side. They're looking for a nominee with different goals in mind. Yeah, Obama, he's a force of nature. He's an icon legend moment, like we've said. But if you're going to be attacked for an experience, if you're going to be dealing with some kind of racially minded attacks with Jeremiah Wright stuff. Who do you want? You want a guy who's old, white, and boring. And they choose the whitest, oldest, but not boringest guy, Joseph Robinette Biden, who hilariously was also on Hillary's shortlist for the VP slot. This man was made to veep. And I forgot about late Y2K era Biden, where he would just have these gaffes, but not the gaffes where his brain is broken, you know? America can be summed up in one word. <laughs> That's an absolute classic. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a deeper cut of a Biden line. I don't know if it's recorded or if it's just in print, but it was during the St. Patrick's Day celebrations that he did in like 2021. Anyway, he has a quote, no offense to the Greeks, but my aunt made the best rice pudding there is. <laughs> So good. <laughs> but the Biden gaffes of the 2000s, which I, another memory hold thing from this election, is that he was making uncle gaffes. Yes. You know, he was saying inappropriate things, not that his brain wasn't working. And I think the most famous example is while he was still running for the Democratic nominee, he had this to say about Obama. I mean, you got the first sort of mainstream African-American. Yeah. Who is articulate and bright and and, and clean and nice looking guy? I mean, it's that's a storybook, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He, he's saying every overused word that an older white guy says about a black person they like, you know? Yeah, he really, he really, he, 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 he pulled his pants up. <laughs> he's, he's a well-spoken guy. He's, he's articulate. He's an athlete. He's a class act. Hell of a basketball player. Yeah. <laughs> well, he used to be a president who was a thinking man's position. Now they got these two-way presidents. <laughs> they can throw and they can run. <laughs> Yeah, Biden. Yeah, Biden sucks so much. This guy who failed at running for president twice spectacularly. His campaign in 2008 just fucking craters. He famously got caught cheating in the 80s. But you know what? He got there. He made it. I don't know if he knows he made it, but he made it. It's awesome that if Biden, if he was born like 60 or 70 years earlier, he'd be like a well-meaning phrenologist. <laughs> <laughs> he'd just be like measuring Obama's skull with calipers and then using that to justify the compliments. Yeah. <laughs> We finally got an African-American guy who's got a skull the size of mine. <laughs> it's a great story. That's a fairy tale right there. Yeah, so the, the Obama campaign does start to worry about Biden's regular gaffes. Biden, say what you will about the guy, he was a dork of the Senate, and he was successful at passing evil legislation. We would not have the crime bill if it weren't for Joseph Robinette Biden. I think I noticed watching the debates, by the way, was that when Obama is in the debate talking about Biden, he cites the crime bill as like one of <laughs> Joe's strengths. He's like, Biden's been in the Senate passing things, got the crime bill through. And it's like Oof. 2008 was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that thing that made slavery happen again? <laughs> I've seen 13th on Netflix. Just to wrap up the, the running mates part here is that there's a debate between the vice presidents and both sides are waiting on bated breath during this entire debate. The, the Palin side is like, please don't ask her about anything. <laughs> anything. <laughs> and the Biden side is like, please don't call her a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Or don't compliment her gams. Yeah. <laughs> After the debate, they both go to their own teams. And basically, the teams were thrilled that neither of them fundamentally said anything. They were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. and what does it say about Biden that he couldn't beat Sarah Palin in a debate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such a shame. We only got one between him and Trump because Trump got COVID. Like, I wanted oh, three yeah, of those. Rob. This woman who does not have object permanence. <laughs> he could not beat her. Yeah, I... I all he would need to say would be like, Governor Palin, what is an election? <laughs> Just see what happens. But apparently in the prep that Sarah Palin had to do, she was asked, because she had a son who was going to
trying to serve in Iraq. Her oldest son served in Iraq. And she was asked, what enemy is your son fighting in Iraq? And she didn't know. They they asked her who did 9-11. And she said, oh, Saddam Hussein. That was like one of the moments in the prep where they're like, fuck, this is going to be a lot of work. (laughs) Now we're getting towards the general election. We're like September, October of 08 right here. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought the 2008 election was going to be all foreign policy, all about the war, the war that expanded 06, 07, 08. That favors McCain, war hawk, war hero, depending on your opinion on whether or not you like people who got captured. But there's a little surprise. In September, October of 2008, the financial crisis happens, which I don't know, maybe we'll do an episode on it at some point, but just go watch the big short. It tells you what to believe and what happened. We will a thousand percent do an episode on it. It's such a huge moment in history and it happens to be happening one month before the election. Lehman Brothers collapses a over 100 year old financial institution. And now everything is about the economy, which is not John McCain's strong suit. This is really where the race is kind of decided. Think about the cherry on top of the Bush years of war, Katrina, scandals, and just for good measure, the financial and housing (laughs) sectors collapse. And it is legitimately in crisis mode. And John McCain takes a big gamble where he says he's going to suspend his campaign so he can go do Senate things. This is one of his John McCain maverick, high risk, high reward kind of things. And he bungles this so fucking hard because he flies back to Washington. He hasn't even scheduled meetings with anyone. He's wandering the halls of Congress. He has no plan to actually hammer through a deal because the banks are saying we need $700 billion now if you don't want the world economy to crater. But you know who does rise to the occasion? Uh, A little fellow by the name of Barry Sorrento. (laughs) (laughs) The Republicans are hamstrung because their whole ideology is built around not intervening. And this is the one time that they might have to do that. And so McCain says, I'm not showing up at the next debate. I'm going to be in Washington solving the problems. And he has Bush schedule a meeting to discuss what to do about the financial crisis with the Democrats. Everybody's going to be working together to find a solution. And so Bush schedules this meeting with all the top Republicans, top Democrats. And Bush actually invites Obama as a show of good faith to say that he's not going to politicize this. And they get into the meeting and Nancy Pelosi defers to Obama and says, actually, you know what? He's the leader of the party now and we're going to let him lead our side of things. And so Barack Obama gets up there and he leads the meeting. He outlines the problems and the potential solutions. He even goes as far as to identify things that both parties already agree on and things that they can move forward with. He's the fucking student council president on this one. He's he's doing everything. Oh yeah, he's alpha giga Chad of West Wing legislating right here. <laughs> McCain is on the, the cuck chair at the hotel just <laughs> watching <laughs> Obama fuck his wife. It's such a huge self-own. It is a true congratulations you played yourself moment <laughs> because this meeting happens because McCain requests it. He mm-hmm. makes this meeting happen. And Bush doesn't want to schedule it. Bush is like, why? They're, they're it's, doing it's theater. Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually want to hang out with you is basically Bush's response. Yeah. But here's a, a pro tip. If you're ever in an election or, or competing against anyone, you don't want to generate a scenario in which the person you're running against has the opportunity to look like they've already won and <laughs> create that image for people. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he did. He just created an image where it, it felt like Barack Obama was president mm-hmm. to everyone who was there. In the behind the scenes, in the lead up to this, Obama was a bit of a dork. He was talking to Ben Bernanke, chair of the Fed. He was talking to this guy, Wolfson, who wrote the bailout package. Obama was staying abreast of the issues. McCain didn't want to talk about this. 
this. He wanted to keep it about experience and the war. And so as this economy is tanking, he's saying things like, you know, that's just banks. The American economy, it's got good fundamentals. Mm -hmm. The fundamentals of our economy are strong. And it's just one bank after the next is folding. And Obama, for all of his weaknesses, he was a great brain trust guy. And he was really able to, as a professor, be aware of the information that he needed to know about how something as complicated as the world economy and Republicans who were there, it got leaked to the press. They said, if you closed your eyes, you would have thought Obama was president already. Of course, this meeting didn't actually accomplish anything because the Republicans couldn't pass legislation based on that meeting now because it would make it look like Obama did it. And Bush apparently yelled at McCain and was like, you asked me to schedule this meeting, you goof. And now (laughs) I can't even do any of the things we just talked about. Yeah, just absolute self-immolation of any goodwill he had with everyone, with independents, Democrats, Republicans. He sat there silently. And then at the end, he just summarized the things that they had talked about. Like he was keeping minutes. It's like, okay, thanks. And his whole thing was that Barack Obama is a celebrity. I'm the real deal. Mm -hmm. And what's he do is he schedules a fucking photo op in the middle of this crisis. Everything that gave people an ounce of respect for John McCain, he threw out the window with this election. Well, apparently when Ben Bernanke was on the phone with McCain explaining the problem, he was like, hold hold, uh, hold on, I'm going to get Governor Palin on the phone here. And (laughs) and Bernanke's trying to explain how the world economy works and what he thinks they need to do. And Palin goes, well, you know, the the main job of government is to keep Wall Street away from the needs of Main Street. And Bernanke's just like, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) just like, yeah, he's the former CEO of a major Wall Street bank. (laughs) (laughs) Personally antagonizing to him. (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, that's a nice line, but you know, we're not on TV right now. We need to get to the bottom of this problem. I'm trying to keep you informed. (laughs) Stop disparaging my former employer. (laughs) Well, you had talked about just how rapidly the dialogue had shifted from things being focused on war to things focused on the crisis. So I found a thing from Pew Research that showed literally week to week how fast this changed. So the convention is September 1st to 4th, the Republican convention, basically Palin's big rollout. The week of September 8th to 14th, half of any coverage about the McCain campaign is about Palin, which is exactly what they want. You know, any press is good press kind of thing. 4% of coverage has is financial. The next week, September 15th to 21st, 43% of coverage is financial and everything else has dropped. And at the same time, the degree of coverage from him, which started at the beginning of the campaign as being majority positive coverage has plummeted to 7% of coverage of McCain at this point is positive and 69% is negative. That's how rapidly this stuff shifted. But just on the financial crisis thing, it is funny, you know, you think about the ebbs and flows of the tides of history. And if this financial crisis happens two months later, it's possible that McCain could have been president. It's one of the things that makes this election so fascinating is this biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression happens one month before the election happens. It's it's truly unique in that way. Yeah, so we roll towards the election. Sarah Palin is let off the leash to attack Obama in a way that McCain can't because he's the gracious old stately one and she's the populist firebrand. And this is where you start to really get the seeds of the birther movement. This is where the attacks are saying things like Barack Obama is not like us. She has plausible deniability because she, she can say it's because he's elitist, it's because he hates America, blah, 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 blah. But come on, yeah. come on. We, she, all well, she, she, <laughs> we all know what she She's gets. playing up his connection to David Ayers and domestic terrorists. And mm-hmm. she's reflecting this crowd's energy, which isn't a 
apparent at the time, but I mean, it is now because we, we know it well from Trump's rallies, but she's playing into this idea that Barack Obama is, is a Manchurian candidate who represents Islam. And it's like this darker side of the Republican id that I think they were doing a pretty good job of, well, I don't know. They certainly <laughs> weren't playing directly to it because they knew that they needed this sort of median voter, but she's exciting that part of the base. And it's starting to reflect in a lot of the crowds that McCain is getting. And McCain is getting very frustrated with it because he's encountering people on the campaign trail that are like proto QAnon wackos Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know what to say to them. And I have a couple clips of McCain trying to deal with these people on the campaign trail. We're scared. Um, We're scared of an Obama presidency. And I'll I'll tell you why. (laughs) I'm concerned about, um, you know, someone that, you know, cohorts with uh, domestic terrorists such as heirs. I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as president of the United States. Now, I, I just, now I just, now, now look, I, I, I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not, no? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is all about. Yeah. So in, in that first clip, he gets approached by like a goatee sporting Oakley style guy <laughs> who says that Barack Obama is a Muslim and he's trying to say, no, he's not a Muslim. And he's getting booed. Mm. He's getting booed at his own rally. Brutal. This is the point where, especially when Trump shows how successful it is to go the other direction, I don't know, not foster just horrendous malice towards the opponent because it didn't work. <laughs> as it ends yeah. Well, here's, here's uh, an example of Trump on the campaign trail who's getting a very similar question asked to him. All right, let's start with this group right over here. Come on. Okay, this man, I like this guy. Welcome, White Plains. Amen. Okay. We have a problem in this country. It's called Muslims. We know our current president is one. Right. You know he's not even an American. We need this first question. Certificate, this is man. The first question. But anyway, we have training camps growing where they want to kill us. Mm -hmm. That's my question. When can we get rid of it? We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that, and a lot of people are saying that bad things are happening out there. We're going to be looking at that and plenty of other things. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) We got a problem in this country. It is called Muslim. Trying to work his thing into a question retroactively. (laughs) (laughs) They got training camps. And my question is, when are we going to get rid of them? (laughs) We're going to be looking into it. We're going to be looking into a lot of things. I love that you actually hear Donald Trump go, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I love this guy. (laughs) This is the first question. He's putting me on the spot. Right, right, right. Yep. Imagine what it must be like to be that guy. He must be so scared all the time. I don't want to feel sympathy for this racist, but like, yeah, imagining that there's terrorism camps everywhere, that they're growing. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's the same ideology that had every person who lived in small town Wisconsin convinced that their Kroger's was going to be bombed next. They had to always be on the lookout for Islamo fascists. I am the protagonist. <laughs> yeah. Color-coded terror alert. Maybe, yeah. maybe 
that should be the new podcast art is the color-coded terrorism alert. Yeah, we got to get Kanye off. So McCain is asking his campaign manager, what is with these yahoos who are at my town hall? And if you notice with that woman who says he's an Arab, she's sort of unsure of whether she should be saying this. She's clearly self-aware that this is an offensive thing that she should not be saying out loud. And I think that his decision- A different time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, true. That second guy with Trump had no problem spinning it out. (laughs) I think she's unsure. She's like, he's- He's, he's an Arab, and I think that his decision to name Palin as his running mate and let her off the leash emboldens this attitude within people. And it's, it's Grom Hellscream with the fell. It's taken over <laughs> the orcs and turned them into fell orcs. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I know. It's all good. That's a good point. I like that we brought it back to Warcraft. <laughs> no, I was, <laughs> I was just going to say it's it's very funny that Arab is not a slur. It's an ethnic group. Obama could be an Arab, but she, she uses it broadly to be like, he's an Arab, i.e. he's a Muslim, i.e. he's a terrorist. But I really love his response. No, no, he's not an Arab. He's a good man. <laughs> This is the oppositional binary that John McCain has. You know, there's two kinds of people in this world. There are good men and there are Arabs. There's two types of people in this world. There are Arabs and there are family men. (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's so true. Her her statement is, he's an ethnicity. (laughs) The wrong one. It is funny how misdirected. You know what you're trying to say? I know you're trying to be Islamophobic, but you're not. (laughs) Yeah. Arab is an ethnic group. Islam is a religion. So wouldn't you know it, Barack Obama wins this election and he wins huge, massive landslide. He wins North Carolina. He wins Indiana. He wins Florida. States that are now off the table forever for Democrats. As we already said, a 60 seat majority. He actually only has 59. And then a moderate Republican from Pennsylvania switches parties. He torpedoes his own political career to give Obama a supermajority so that he can govern in this time of intense crisis. And Obama just takes a shit on his chest. (laughs) Does not use this thing. Yeah, it was a huge moment of catharsis for the entire country. Everybody was caught up in Obama mania and we really got into this idea of what America could be at our best. And 30 Rock played with this a little bit. Do you remember when Pete, he like kisses a woman? He kisses the beautiful security guard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just because the vibes were so good when it happened that he was trying to recreate it in 2012, but it doesn't work. But everybody was briefly on a high and Obama came in with massively high approval rating. Oh, and Obama was really pushing the high drugs. In his acceptance speech that night, he said that the seas were going to stop rising because of the results of this election. (laughs) Spoiler alert, they haven't. (laughs) (laughs) We promised an end to global warming and what we got was a Bruce Springsteen podcast. It's so true, though, and I think that's something that if you weren't old enough to remember, it's hard, I think, to understand how optimistic people felt. Generally, people who had never felt optimism before, (laughs) and little did they know, would never feel optimism (laughs) since. But at the time, in the middle of it, you had all these young people just feeling like anything is possible. Finally, we're going to make all these changes, these systems, Congress and the Senate and all these things that we all know are just gummed up and not working for the people. Finally, it's going to happen. There was such a groundswell and mobilized young voters at record levels who otherwise had never felt engaged with this idea of it's going to be different. Things are going to change. 
Change, we can believe it. Have hope. Yeah. They're going to change. Yeah. yeah. Believe in something. It was the last time my brain released the chemical dopamine. It's 2008. (laughs) Well, the only thing that's felt even remotely similar since was that weird period at the beginning of COVID when Mm. the world shut down and then dolphins were in the canals in Venice. (laughs) And like Bernie Sanders had won the Iowa caucus. But Bernie Sanders won three in a row, something no candidate had ever done in the history of the presidential primary. If it were any other candidate, they would have talked about his unstoppable momentum because literally no one had done it before. But yes, I even remember in this heady moment of optimism, there was talk, legitimate talk of, man, some of these Wall Street bankers are going to go down. The SEC is going to put some of these evil bankers in jail. And even less serious, oh, we're going to get the architects of the Iraq war. Obama was never going to prosecute a single fucking actual criminal in the case of the bankers. Yeah. And I think we know that Obama's political career was hampered by his insane need to work with his enemies in getting legislation passed. And I think the first sign of that was after the campaign ended, he begged Hillary to become his secretary of state. He had to call her personally a few times and ask her to do it and say, there's no one else. There's no one else who can do this but you, Hillary. You're the only person who could do it day one. And she once again was like, well, you know, I have this campaign that <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be, you no, know, what she said, this is no lie. She was like, I don't know, Barack, I'm going to be working so hard to get rid of this campaign debt. I don't know if I'll have time to be secretary of state. Masterclass. that's how you extort you know who passed a better stimulus package fucking joe brandon joe brandon did a better stimulus package first off obama set a ceiling on the stimulus he said i will not pass a one trillion dollar bill the deficit hawks will yell at me oh no the (laughs) deficit hawks the people who care about the imaginary money make them bend the knee (laughs) you are a targaryen you have dragons don't play the game of thrones like a lowly baratheon he set a ceiling one trillion dollars absolute top i think it comes out to 800 bill or so Half of it is tax breaks to get Republicans to vote for it. None of them did. He hobbled himself for nothing. <laughs> we haven't talked about the West Wing and just the way that it plays into like Obama and his entire staff's psychology at this time. Because mm-hmm. every lanyard wearing freak in Washington at this point, especially if you're liberal, has grown up just absorbing the West Wing deep into the all of the little folds of their brains. And <laughs> it's just how they understand the world at this point. Mm-hmm. And it informs so much of what ends up happening in Obama's White House. It's just this idea of arousing speech and uh, stick to and a willingness to compromise and base things only on justifiable facts is the ticket to success. There's always a good compromise. There are no different class interests. <laughs> You can always find a compromise. If we just present them the correct data mm-hmm. and sh- do a uh, ergo proctor hawk. Yeah, <laughs> post hoc ergo proctor hawk. <laughs> You've become the logical fallacy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned the West Wing, Kyle, because Obama did one rally with a Clinton and it was with Bill, not Hillary. In the lead up to the election, he did a single rally with Bill Clinton just to put on the public face, no bad blood, party unity, we're good. You know who the third speaker at that thing was? Jimmy Smits, the Latinx actor who played the inspirational Obama type figure in the final seasons of the West Wing. The West Wing had a pretend Obama in the last seasons, which I didn't watch. I don't want anyone thinking I'm, I'm, I'm out here recommending you watch late West Wing, but they had an inspirational Obama type. He was young. He was 
was a POC. He was played by Jimmy Smith. That was who Obama had talking. It's like, look, you, we can make the West Wing real. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath, yeah. uh, which we have been doing. But I think that obviously the person who gets elected has a huge influence on culture because that administration is going to have policy goals. and <laughs> Ideally. <the> Ideally, <laughs> yeah, in an ideal world. But I think what often can have an even bigger impact is the aggrieved losing side of the election. So, for example, Trump gets elected in 2016. Do you guys think that something like the Me Too movement happens if Hillary Clinton wins that election? I don't know that it does. The Me Too movement was largely a reaction to Trump winning. And what we have in 2008 or in 2009 is the Republican aggrievement to Barack Obama being president. People who removed themselves from polite political life in order to embrace that Sarah Palin energy that we talked about before. They release themselves from the polite world because they see it as being unjust. And the polite world lost, right? This is the final triumph of right-wing talk radio. And it's even lesser imitations. Like Donald Trump loved Rush Limbaugh, gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. John McCain hated Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. He thought that they were hurting the brand of conservatism. These radio-style almost shock jocks. But guess what? McCain's a fucking loser, folks. He <laughs> lost. He's a loser. Get that shit out of here. And we get things like the Tea Party movement, which is a reaction a, a, away from Obama's spendocrat nature. The dang deficit, y'all. Yeah. yeah, the deficit is too bad when the economy is collapsed. <laughs> but more importantly, we get a lot of proto-QAnon things going on after Barack Obama is elected, including the birther movement, the idea of Barack Obama being a gay prostitute, Barry Sorrento, the insane conspiracy theory that Michelle Obama is a man. Have you seen, have you seen her arms, though, dude? Could a lady <laughs> be that jacked? Think about it. The criticism of the government takes on a very conspiratorial tone. So in 2015, CNN did a poll that found that 29% of Americans and 43% of Republicans believe that Obama is a Muslim. In 2011, CNN found that 40% of Republicans believe that Obama had been born in Kenya. And you know that this was Trump's political issue that sort of put him in the spotlight. Everybody's seen the Joker-fi moment when Barack Obama is making fun of Trump at the White House Correspondents' Dinner for his birtherism comments. And you could just see Trump sitting there pretending to laugh. And a lot of people have said that that's the moment when he decided to, to run for president. Yeah, it's brutal zingers like Donald Trump likes to appear on Fox News, which is funny because the Fox likes to appear on Donald Trump's head. <laughs> <laughs> brutal. <laughs> he was really good at the White House correspondence dinners. I will give him that. Yeah, because it's about being charming and likable yeah, and yeah. popular. Yeah, I was watching the debates with McCain um, that Obama had, and the only campaign promise that he said during the debates that has come true is that America is now energy independent. <laughs> like we, 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 Thanks. Thanks, fracking. Totally There's dope. definitely not going to be any bad knock-on effects from that. <laughs> the fucking drone strikes. Like, <laughs> the Nobel Peace Prize. It's Yeah. 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 <laughs> like if that doesn't fracture your mind, what else would? How could you not <laughs> <laughs> by that unresolvable conflict. I yeah. think that's a huge part of Obama's legacy that isn't fully reckoned with. And then I think that there's actually a lot of resistance to critiquing him for various reasons. But like, yeah, the dude fucking dropped the bag like nobody else. <laughs> and here we are. Look what has come since then. Yeah, man, this is his legacy. His legacy is not Obamacare. His legacy is the 2016 election. That's Obama's legacy. And I think you can draw some very strong connections between 
08 and 16. The Democratic Party, I think they they feel a bit of guilt for how they treated Hillary. So they kneecap Bernie twice. But they give Hillary the debate questions in advance because she couldn't beat the independent socialists from Vermont. She totally clears the field once again. Those primaries essentially act as a form of a meritocracy. It weeds out people who maybe they look good on paper, but they don't have that factor that it takes to win a general election. And, and that's what the primaries are meant to do is identify these weaknesses in candidates. And Hillary is just carried through the primary because they feel bad. They gave Hillary the questions and ahead of the debates. Barack Obama is, is calling people to tell them to drop out of the race in 2020. And there's a reason why Hillary didn't win the general election. And it's because of very real issues with her record and her spirit. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's all we got prepped. I think those are some nice closing thoughts. Obama's legacy is where we are now. And it all started in the plains of Iowa, 2007. If you joined us for our 2008 election coverage, thank you as always for listening. Like, subscribe, give us five stars. My name is Ben. With me as always is my co-host Jordano. And a big shout out to our guest Kyle for slogging through hours upon hours of podcasting. <laughs> it's great to be back. All right. Bye. Uh, sweet. I am fun. I am fun. <laughs> I am fun. I'm fun. I contracted it there. Do you think that was a little too fun? <laughs> what do you, what kind of message does it send? <laughs> America, you know, those mornings when you wake up and you're feeling not so fun. <laughs> mornings in America are fun again. <laughs> <laughs> Jordana, I don't think I am fun is as funny as you and I thought it was yeah. in preparing. <laughs> we, we just, we probably said it 10,000 times while yeah. preparing for this episode. <laughs>